Happy New Year and a belated Happy Solstice and Merry Christmas or whatever midwinter festival you celebrate and welcome to the first episode of Season 2 of the Irish Mythology Podcast. I'm Marcus O'Hishkin. And I'm Stephanie Hearney. Belated Bannachtin and Blian Anua, Greenstad Hunna, August Nullag Hunna Div. So we're big fans of the winter solstice here at the Irish Mythology Podcast and today's episode has a solstice theme. We hope you'll enjoy it. Oh, God. <laughs> Listeners, remain confident that I am still petitioning for a dad joke free version of this podcast to be made available on uh, Patreon at the very least. But anyway, we do live uh, very close to Newgrange, which you may have heard of. And although we've never had the opportunity to go into the chamber there for the solstice sunrise, we do usually go to nearby Douth for the sunset. Yeah, you have probably heard of Newgrange, but just in case you haven't, it is one of the oldest intact buildings in the world. It's roughly 5,200 years old, in fact, and it has a very precise astronomical alignment with the winter solstice. It is situated in the Boyne Valley, uh, the Boyne being the river named for the goddess Bowen, which we talked about in episode 2. And it is the most famous of three large buildings of its type in that area, along with many smaller versions. There are 40 that we know of in, in the area alone. So Newgrange is known as a type of passage tomb, which means it's a very, very large structure built of stone and it has sort of a tiny corridor inside it. And there, when you get to the end of the corridor, I can't remember exactly how long it is, but when you get to the end of the corridor, it opens up into sort of a chamber. And on the shortest day of the year, that is on the winter solstice, when the sun rises, there's a what's known as a roof box at the front. And when the sun rises, um, obviously this is a very, very dark chamber because it's, you know, a big stone building. It only has this tiny, tiny entrance at the front. But when the sun rises, it illuminates the entirety of the chamber or not the entirety of the chamber but it illuminates the passage into the chamber in a way that's not seen on any other day of the year so that that illumination happens on the day of the solstice and and a day or so either side of that on the 21st of December and if you're interested which we will link in the show notes uh there is some really good footage from the day before the solstice uh this year and probably should mention that how you get into it there's a lottery and if you visit Newgrange you put your name in for the lottery and there's thousands and thousands and thousands of people yeah um trying to get in there every year for the solstice so it's very hard to get a place but just down the road at Douth another one of these passage tombs um exists and the same thing happens at sunset Douth is a bit smaller and not as well known uh, although it has two passages but the Office of Public Works, who are responsible for Ireland's heritage sites, usually open it up uh, to people and to let them take turns seeing the illuminated chamber. Unfortunately, due to COVID, it wasn't actually open this year, but we celebrated in other ways. And one of those ways is to tell a story associated with the winter solstice. Yeah, today we have our adaptation of part one, or really the prologue, of the famous early medieval saga, The Wound of Attain. Doesn't directly mention the solstice, but it is set at Newgrange and it is full of solar imagery that would make it an unlikely coincidence if the origins of this tale were not in solstice lore and is generally believed to be by scholars and academics. 
You'll also see some similarities between this story and the more familiar Christian nativity story. It features the birth of a god who is himself the son of gods and this birth symbolises the return of light to the world. It might seem like a strange coincidence at first, but when you consider the fact that many mythological tales are allegories for astronomical phenomena, it makes a lot more sense because in the Northern Hemisphere, where both the nativity of Jesus and our native pagan nativity tale are set, people were looking at the same things in the sky at this time of year. We'll chat all about this a bit later, but now we present our adaptation, The Wooing of Attain, Part 1. Nativity of the Young Son Faro, Faro, in Aaron The Dagda's harp plays once more Now that Brez has been deposed The four-angled music that his enchanted harp plays Has put the seasons back in their proper place Prosperity has returned Not just for some ruler and his loyal royal lackeys But for everyone that calls this land their home The great herd, saved from being offered up as tribute to the Fomorians, ensures that the land is never short of cattle, and now that the seasons are in harmony once more, there is just enough sunshine and just enough rain to ensure that the fields of this island are green as can be, greener than you have ever seen. The cows that graze on this vibrant green pasture produce the best milk and the best butter, and you can take your horse wherever you like, but you won't find butter better. The Dagda can rightly be pleased with his life, without being forced by the tyrant Brez to labour digging ditches, without the humiliation and starvation inflicted by Crigenbell, the satirist who used to demand the three best bits of his meal. It is not only his harp that has been restored, but so too his power and his pride. With his bottomless cauldron, he can feed 500 or 5,000 or 5 million or more. With his magical club, he has power over life and death. One end to kill, the other end to resurrect. He has two pigs, one that is always growing and the other that is always roasting. But there is something missing. Bowen peers out of the window he had made for her. Alkmar, that husband of hers. She looks upon her own creation, that river made of part of her, the flowing waters driven by her spirit. She can feel every inch of the valley she flows through, every stone, every grain of sand, every living thing. Her river ebbs and flows, floods and subsides. It feeds the clouds in the sky, it feeds the fields of green grass where the cattle graze. It fills the bowls of the people who wash by her banks, the cauldrons where meals are made, and the cups of her people who drink to her health with such genuine love. Without her, the sun and the rain could not make this place so green, and those cows out there could not produce that beautiful milk that makes that great golden butter. Bowen should be very proud of her work. She defied her first husband and became far more than just a woman of the she. She is a goddess, part of the two-a-day. She created the fertile river valley that has made this great civilization that she looks upon and the starry night sky so they can look back at her. 
When she walks by on the road and the sky that she made, she lights up the night so that gods can be seen. When she answers the calls of priestesses and priests, she pours divine wisdom upon them. Her little hound stands by her side to protect her at night and by day wades to sea to watch over her land. But there is something missing. Each morning, the Dagda hitches his horses to his chariot, the sun. He rides from the Shi and appears in the east, over the Sea of Man, and gallops across the sky. He flies over Inverculpa, across villages and farms, where people look up with broad smiles and call out his name. The praise of the common folk nourishes him now that he feels his muscle and sinew strengthen. He sees a souffle of dark snow clouds in the distance, and in thanks for the praise of the people below, he summons his power, reaches out with his mind, and conjures a gust of wind to part them. The clouds scatter in every direction, except the direction of the fertile valley on which the light from the Great Father's chariot shines, melting the morning frost. His work gives him pleasure, his horses keep a steady pace as he does his morning rounds, and there is no work in keeping his chariot moving. He takes out his magic harp and plays his four-angled music. It is almost time for the wheel to click, for winter's last corner to be turned on the road to spring. As his divine music fills the sky, he catches in the corner of his eye someone peering from Alkmar's mound. Bowen steps off the starry road and returns to her home. The night was long, and on these long winter nights there is much work to do to watch over her children. Families huddle in huts and stone houses, wrapped in the skins of deer and other creatures, praying they survive the cold. Her priestesses and priests, wrapped in layer after layer, gather outside her home, to study the sky, to determine the moment the light will return, and she shows them. She shows them the movements of planets and stars, and they measure their position and compare them to measurements they took before. Now she's tired, her feet cold and sore. It is time to rest, if only for minutes to replenish her strength for the tasks she undertakes by the light of the day. She will tend to her garden, the abundant shoals of salmon and trout, the plankton, minnows, insects and other fish that they eat are in her care. The vegetation of the riverbed needs to be tended to and the plains that she floods have to be prepared for the coming of spring when calves are born. The dark passage before her calls her to sleep, but upon her neck, she feels a sudden warmth. At first, the Dagda glimpses her flowing red hair, and then she turns. He marvels at her milky white skin and shining starry eyes, and then she's gone. But that's enough to know. Something stirs inside him, this is what, or rather who, was missing. 
If this is Bruna Bonia, Alkmaar's house. If this is Alkmaar's house, then she must be Alkmaar's wife, Bowen. He has heard so much. She created all of this, but nothing could have prepared him for her beauty. He lingers, glancing longingly for her to return to the window, to get her attention, to lock eyes, and just as he is ready to leave, she returns. Stars, galaxies, nebulas dance from that little window, reaching out to the rays of light and heat emanating from his chariot, and he understands. She has these feelings too. Bowen turns back to the window, narrows her eyes, and looks out to the blazing chariot. There, upon the chariot, is a glorious god, wearing a short tunic, long, flowing, greying red hair, and a big red beard. Something stirs inside of her, He's looking back. She feels the rays from his chariot touching her face, igniting a burning desire. But this is Elkmar's house, and she is Elkmar's wife. She has heard so much of this Ochud Olaher and his power, his beauty, and his talent for seduction. But now that she sees him, she truly understands. He is intoxicating. But surely nothing can happen when she is bound to her husband. To Elkmar. It is then that Elkmar rises from his bed, walks down the dark corridor, and joins Bowen at the window. He looks out at the Dagda. He wonders what he wants. The Dagda sees the second face looking out upon him. It is Elkmar, his steward. He considers the problem his desire for Bowen, the presence of her husband, his loyal supporter and confidant. A light illuminates his intellect, and he beckons Elkmar over to where he hovers in the sky. Elkmar immediately complies with his lord. Elkmar, my good friend, there is talk that Brez has not left his wrath in months. Go to him with my greetings, and an invitation to my court at Ishnach. Tell him his mother will be in attendance and there is no longer ill will towards him among the gods. Remain there until this day and night have passed. To Bowen's surprise, Alkmar waves goodbye, summons his horse and mounts. He gallops off to the west, leaving her looking out at the one she desires, the Dagda as he approaches her. The light of his chariot illuminates the entrance to her home and spills through to the corridor behind that until now was in darkness. It is happening. Her heart pounds as she watches him climb off his chariot and stride to her door. What will she say when he asks? Her mind races with a thousand different answers, 500 ways of saying yes, 500 ways of saying no. But when he asks, she says yes. Yes, I will, yes. He crosses the threshold, takes her hand, and looks deep into the galaxy in her eyes. One hundred thousand million stars spiral around him. They consume him until he is one with their heat. 
Her hand grasps his. She opens her eyes wide and lets him in, lets him see into her soul. The blazing fire of his breath ignites her whole being, her stars and his dance getting closer, closer until they they are are one. one. The sun stands still. He is one. Everything he was and everything he is to be converge with what they give to him of themselves. He is one, they are one, together they are three, and for the one and for the three the sun stands still. He is fire, he is heat, he is the dawning of the day, he is the face that breaks a thousand hearts, the inspiration for a thousand poems, the miracle that causes gods to kneel and pray. He expands, he divides, the memory of what he was before fades away until he is a blank slate, a new being only just created. Yet, he is old. Billions upon billions of years without form live within him, unseen, unremembered, but always present. Those years become tiny, inanimate copies of bodily organs and limbs, and then, Though he can't see or smell or hear, he can feel. It is warm, comforting, nourishing. It is calm. Everything he knows is contained within this bubble. There is nothing beyond. His arms and legs move. He stretches out, turns, reaches, kicks, explores his universe, touches its walls. He is aware of everything that exists. He is one with the substance of the universe, but nothing has a name, it just is. He kicks and he kicks. There is little else to do, no one else to do it with, until he presses hard against the walls of existence and feels something. No, someone touching back from the other side. There is another side, there is someone else, someone watching over him, protecting, caring, giving. It is then that he hears sounds that beings make, sounds that he doesn't understand but whose benevolence is clear. He wonders who they are. The voices make him feel warm and fuzzy. The beings from beyond make him feel safe and he wonders if he will ever meet them, see what they look like and reach out and touch them. The sounds develop into a pattern. They mean something. He is sure of it. Some of them are musical, some of them are not. At times he can hear a single, clear, sweet note playing over and over again on an object. At others, he hears many notes from the beings themselves. And as he expands to fill the whole of his universe, he makes his first choice. He can wait no longer. He must meet them. There is no comfort here now. He turns his body looking for a way out. His chin touches his chest and he descends and something presses against his neck. He pushes his head back. He feels his universe empty. The substance that comforted him all this time is fleeing. He can see a light ahead, illuminating a passage, showing the way and he feels a push. His universe is forcing him into exile and he suddenly regrets his curiosity. He wants to stay, but it is too late. 
Through screams and wails, his and another's, he continues towards the light, towards the other place. He is cold. He is scared. The screeching sounds he makes are new to him, yet they come naturally. Something warm is wrapped around him, giving him some comfort. He opens his eyes. He sees the beings. Two giants. One rugged, smiling, hairy-faced, and one soft, beautiful, familiar. He feels love. Angus, young son. The sound comes from the hairy face, and he knows that sound, he has heard it before. Angus, fruit of my one desire, the soft one says. He reaches out and touches her face, and for the first time he realises that he must have one too. He is like the giants. He is one of them. The new universe is bigger than the last. Its edges are dark, but the centre is illuminated by a shaft of light that warms him. The hairy face lifts him up. The giant says something he doesn't understand to the soft one and turns away, moving towards the light. The light follows them out through a passage, leaving darkness behind. This new universe that he knew all too briefly gives way to another, a bigger, brighter one. He is overwhelmed by colour and light and the sight of many other beings, some two-legged, some four. The hairy-faced one takes him to an object, hitched to four-legged creatures, and places him on his back. He closes his eyes, lulled to sleep by music the giant plays, and they go, they fly away to the west. So that's the story of the birth of a divine being whose father is a god, but he's not the usual partner of the mother. And it's kind of similar to the Christian nativity story in that sense. Yeah, so what's happened here is we have Bowen, who we know who created the Boyne River and she's a goddess in her own right. And she's married to Elkmar. And she sees the Dagda, the Dagda sees her, their eyes meet, it's a very beautiful thing. And they're clearly into each other. So the Dagda says to Elkmar, here, do me this favour, go and do this thing. And himself and Bowen have an opportunity to be together. As a result of that dalliance, uh, Bowen falls pregnant. And the Dagda then, because he is the god who controls the seasons and how the the, the wheel of the year turns, uh, he decides that he's going to stop the sun for a period of nine months for uh, Bowen to have her pregnancy and to give birth to Angus. So that story that we just heard is the birth of Angus. So the obvious difference here is that in our story, everyone is a god. The ancient Irish worshipped many gods before the coming of Christianity in a practice known as polytheism. Christianity, on the other hand, is a monotheistic religion, which essentially means that there is only one god. So by necessity, most of the other characters in the Christian tale are earthly beings, though you have angels and whatnot, but both are heavily laden with astronomical significance. In the wooing of Attain, for example, the sun stands still uh, for the duration of Bowen's pregnancy. This is usually portrayed as a work of magic performed by the Dagda to ensure that Elkmar does not return until after the birth of Angus. Um, it's very EastEnders, isn't it? You know, <laughs> but with magic. Um, but anyway, so he does this 
And we've mentioned before that the Dagda had a harp whose music kept the seasons in their proper place. Imagine Dirty Dan had a magic harp. <laughs> he ended up in the canal. Oh God, yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah. There you go. Be careful now with these old harps. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, the Dagda's harp plays on Kor Kahar Kur, uh, or the four-angled music, which makes the earth and the planets and the constellations move. So when the music stops, so does time. And Agmar is none the wiser. So it's an echo of the story actually remains in the Irish language. Yeah, so the Irish word for solstice is greenstad, which literally translates as sun stop. The winter solstice is greenstad on Gary. In fact, so that's the on Gary's winter. In fact, the word solstice itself is derived from the Latin words uh, sol for sun and the verb sistere, which means to stand still. Now, around the time of the solstice, the rising position of the sun appears to stop. And as we mentioned earlier, the rising sun enters the passage at Newgrange and illuminates the chamber. And that lasts for about 17 minutes on the solstice and the two days either side of it. And we should point out, actually, that, you know, if it's a really cloudy day and the sun is not visible, that's, you know, doesn't happen. Yeah. Not to ruin the magic of this story, yeah. <laughs> of course. But and, and on the solstice this year, it was actually a cloudy day. But yeah. the day before, it the was, day before it was it, lovely. It was perfect. And imagine, like, if you got no sun at all during the three days, it would have been a bad, bad omen for the year ahead for those people. Well, no sun in general is bad omen. Yeah. You know, you can't, can't get the washing dry. It like stands to reason, you know. But anyway, carry on. <laughs> Interestingly enough, I thought this was interesting anyway, that the planet Venus, in its role as the evening star, sets directly behind Newgrange on the winter solstice. So the exact opposite position to where the sun rises, which makes me think of the three wise men following the star to visit the baby Jesus, the star of Bethlehem. These wise men, or magi, are also linked with an Old Testament prophecy in the book of Isaiah, which says, Kings will come to the brightness of your dawn, bearing gold and frankincense. So there you go, the rising sun imagery again is, is, is in that. Did you know that in Mexico, my understanding is that kids don't write a letter to Santa, they write a letter to the three kings. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. There you go. I suppose they have a track re- record for bringing gifts. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but anyway, we also mentioned earlier that Newgrange, Dyth and other monuments built in the Neolithic era are known as passage tombs. And this designation is due to the fact that human remains are found in them. In Newgrange, most of these remains are cremated, but there were some bones found too. So these places definitely had a funerary purpose, but they were probably more than that. So if anything remains of, say, Christchurch Cathedral in Dublin in a few thousand years and archaeologists were to excavate it, they would find human remains in the crypt. But designating this structure as a burial site alone would be incorrect. And I feel like the same thing has happened at Newgrange. And I think just seeing it as a passage tomb is doing it a disservice. I think if anything remains of Christchurch and a few thousand years it'll be some kind of alien scuba diving archaeologists that'll be excavating it there'll be nothing left like or the seagulls the the seagulls the seagull people are (laughs) our seagull overlords will be picking picking the carcass of strongbow below (laughs) in christchurch 
Britain. So Newgrange and the many other passage tombs found all over Ireland, including one in the Wicklow Mountains, where no human remains were found. And also in the Orkney Islands, Brittany, the Iberian Peninsula and North Africa were all clearly very important to the work of ancient astronomers, as most of them have alignments to solstices or equinoxes or other astronomical bodies. These astronomers probably had an important role for early agricultural societies because their calculations told people when they should plant crops, when to shelter livestock and various other things that enabled their way of life. They also told people what the gods were doing as the gods were seen in the constellations and the movements of heavenly bodies. So they were likely the churches and cathedrals of their time, but we'll probably never know for sure. They could potentially tell us something about the beliefs of the people who built them, though. The myths that have survived to the present day, though much younger than Newgrange and other passage tombs, usually tells us of or tell us of cycles of life and death. So the return of the sun after the longest, darkest night of the year could symbolise rebirth. Just as the leaves on trees and crops in the fields die off in the winter, the solstice sun heralds their rebirth. So it's another 4,000 years or so after the construction of Newgrange that we get our first written mythological stories in Ireland. But the Egyptian Book of the Dead, whose earliest components are over 3,000 years old, might hold a clue as to what the relationship of the solar symbolism of the solstice was to the dead who were laid to rest in the passage tombs. The passage tomb culture predates the pyramids of Egypt, but as we were saying, there are some passage tombs in North Africa, so some of the beliefs of the people who built them could conceivably have travelled to Egypt. The Book of the Dead is comprised of funerary texts, and they have a very interesting structure. Now, they were reassembled by, you know, historians and scholars and whatnot, but they're, they're... kind of arranged into these chapters. So chapter 1 to 16, you have the deceased entering the tomb and descending into the underworld, and the body regains its power of movement and speech. Then after that, you have, it's chapters 17 to 63, uh, you have an explanation of the mythical origins of gods and places. And the deceased is made to live again so that he may rise, reborn with the morning sun. So after that, you have the deceased travels across the sky in a sun arc as one of the blessed dead. And in the evening, the deceased travels to the underworld to appear before Osiris. Now, the, the, the last chapters you find that haven't been vindicated, the deceased assumes power in the universe as one of the gods. Just for our listeners at home, do you want to tell them who Osiris is? Osiris was um, kind of an Egyptian god who judged the dead. and Cool job. So there's plenty of people we know who have full-time <laughs> jobs judging the living. But anyway, uh, so all of this is very similar to what is happening around the Boyne Valley on the winter solstice. The sun enters Newgrange at sunrise and Douth at sunset, which we mentioned earlier on. But it's actually believed that it it entered various satellite tombs as well in between. So at sunset, the sun descends into the underworld that is below the horizon where the dead reside. So maybe the Dagda's chariot would take the dead from their tombs to the underworld where they would prepare for rebirth. Now, 
you might be thinking, surely the Dagda, Bowen, Angus, and all of those are gods associated with the Celtic culture that didn't arrive in Ireland until around 3,000 years after Newgrange was in use. But we know there were still pre-Celtic languages spoken in Ireland at around the early centuries AD, and we talked about that in our episode about Agma, if you missed that. So it's entirely possible that aspects of earlier religions endured and were incorporated into the religions of the Iron Age, same way as aspects of those religions were incorporated into Christianity. Now, the symbolism of the solstice at Newgrange supports this, and we know that the River Boyne was important to early agriculture in that area, so it would be very surprising if it did not have some kind of divine status for our Neolithic ancestors. The wooing of Attain, probably dating to the 8th century, though the earliest copy in existence dates from the early early, uh, 12th century actually, could well be a late adaptation of what was actually a very ancient myth, or a series of myths in fact. It's worth noting that this time of year is associated with the birth of other gods, notably Sol Invictus, who is a Roman sun god, and Mithras, a Persian god that found a new lease of life among the Roman military, and was for a time a direct competitor to Christianity. Um, this is not to suggest that Christ, Sol Invictus, Mithras and Angus Og are the same god. Rather, the importance of the solstice has been nearly universal for millennia, and different cultures used different gods to symbolise this importance. So this all raises the question, was the Dagda, or even Angus, a sun god? Now, it isn't cut and dried at all, and I suppose it also depends on what you actually mean by a sun god. So if the question is, you know, was the Dagda the literal physical sun, then we'd have to say no. Uh, The Dagda and the sun are both in this story, and rather than being the actual sun, the Dagda controls the sun. Yeah, this might be a bit controversial because you see people. Controversy. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> That's um, you, you did uh, that that little bit on episode one of season one as well. So did I? Yeah, but I love Prince. <laughs> so you know. Anyway, dude, an Irish instead. Prince Bother. Sorry. <laughs> Go on. Yeah. So controversy. Anyway, because you do see people online claiming some god or other is the sun god of the Irish pantheon um, and they get very, you know, het up about it, but as, as people do about things online, but I don't think we actually had a sun god or not in the literal... <laughs> Sorry, it's like the biggest understatement of the millennium. Some people get a bit head up, as they do online. <laughs> Meanwhile, there's someone like typing in a death threat. <laughs> How dare you say the dog no wasn't this? Go on. Yeah, but I don't think we had a a sun god in the sense of, um, in the literal sense of a god who was personified, who pers- was personified in the sun. Um, that might seem strange given the importance of the sun, but the reality is that sun gods who were literally the sun weren't exactly common, and where they did exist, they were rarely the supreme god. Like in Rome, Sol Invictus was only really popular in the early centuries CE, and even the famous Ra was um, originally only associated with the noon sun, and he was only really one of the chief gods for two centuries. 
Tom Victus is really like the original, the OG hipster god, you know, yeah. everyone preferred his early work. Um, but anyway, if we're asking, is the Dagda associated with the winter solstice sun, then the answer would be yes. Uh, it's worth noting that the planets bear the names of the gods, not the other way around. So we've said in previous episodes that we think that the Dagda falls into the same class of god as Mercury. But we don't mean that he necessarily has an association with that particular planet. It doesn't mean that they are the exact same god either, but more likely they are both evolutions of a similar primordial god who was worshipped by common ancestor peoples long before there were written records. That class of god includes Mercury, of course, the Greek Hermes, the Egyptian uh, Thoth, and the Norse supreme god Odin. It's like a multilingual pronunciation there <laughs> for you. But anyway. So the Dagda, Hermes <coughs> and Thoth are all Catonic uh, deities. And that means they are underworld gods. Catonic is spelled C-H-T-H-O-N-I-C, which might remind you of um, a god. A lot of people pronounce Cthulhu from H.P. Lovecraft's canon. Like, okay. But he, I, only, I, I looked up the pronunciation yesterday. He pronounced it a completely different way. It's like Kalulu or something like that. All right. But... It, it undoubtedly comes from Oh, the that's the thing yeah. that looks like kind of like an octopus, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I know um, it. Yeah, sure, we were watching that um, Lovecraft Country show. Yeah, that was all right. We'll have yeah. to finish that. So the Dagda lives in the She, which is the Irish underworld. So Hermes, Mercury and the Dagda are all gods of boundaries. Uh, the Dagda's club carves the boundaries of the provinces. They are also usually associated with phallic imagery. That is symbolism associated with the male genitalia, and by extension, they're all associated with fertility. So the Dagda, Thoth, Mercury, and Hermes all possess a magic staff. Odin, of course, has his magic spear, Gungir. All of these gods are also messenger gods who can pass between the underworld, the human world, and the heavens above, and they have associations with assisting the dead to pass from this world to the next. Now, Hermes and the Dagda also have associations with livestock. Hermes is a shepherd god, while the Dagda protects herds of cattle. And also, if you're a fan of American gods... I'm not. I know. <laughs> you haven't really watched it. You need to get back into it. No. Anyway, you will know uh, Toth as actually Mr. Ibis in the show, and Odin is Mr. Wednesday. And I, Lovejoy. I, yeah. I like him as an actor. Maybe I will go back to it. Yeah. Um, well, also, just before we move on, um, Toth in, or Mr. Ibis in American Gods is an undertaker. So there you have the association with the dead. Ah, yeah. okay. Maybe I will watch it. We've also talked about the ancient Sumerian goddess Inanna or Ishtar as a possible precursor to the Morrigan way, way back in episode four. Speaking of the Morrigan, I would like to do potentially an episode on the mythology of crows mm. in general. I know we talked a lot about it in yeah. the episode on the Morrigan, but maybe one for Patreon potentially. Yeah, sure. Why not? I read some very interesting stuff on crows recently. Uh, but anyway, the Dagda is usually seen as the husband of the Morrigan, while Inanna's uh, main consort is Demizid, uh, who, like Hermes, is a shepherd god. Demizid lived in the heavens for half of the year and in the underworld known as Kerr for the second half. He also had associations with fertility and there's a very rude poem dating back. This episode is quite racy compared well, to a lot of other episodes. But anyway, well... It's mild enough. <laughs> well, it is, yeah. Like, But I mean, do you know, just in comparison, like, I mean, there was some of the script when I read it first 
and they were kind of, you know, talking the heat of them together and all of this. And I thought, oh, who yeah. were like, you I, know. It was more like a Mills and Boone than anything, though, you know. Yeah, 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 yeah definitely. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, where were we? Uh, the very rude poem, yeah, that I was talking about. So that very rude poem dates back 3,800 years concerning the sex life of the Musiad and Inanna. And we'll save that for an episode that features the Dagda and the Morrigan. There is a lot of evidence then for the Dagda being of the class of God that includes Hermes and Mercury. But I think that people often overlook that as neither Hermes or Mercury were the supreme god of a pantheon. However, Odin was, and it was Julius Caesar who declared Odin to be one and the same as Mercury when he came into contact with Germanic tribes. It's also worth a mention, as we've done before, that we don't think there was a single pantheon of gods in Ireland prior to the arrival of Christianity, as Ireland was was not a single political unit. Different territories probably had different pantheons with a little bit of crossover, and the early adoption of Christianity prevented an island-wide pantheon from developing, so I suppose that's another thing we'll never really know for sure. But there we are now, ourselves and Julius Caesar, declaring which gods are which. So that's all we have time for today. If you haven't listened to episode two yet, where we talk about Bowen, you might be interested in going back to that. And we'll talk more about Angus in the next episode, along with the historical context of the surviving version of this story. But before we go, we want to once again wish all of our listeners and patrons a happy new year. and. Thank you for making this worth doing. Um, I think everyone's had a tough year with COVID and and everything this year has been a bit rubbish to say the least. Um, we're not out of the woods yet, but there are rays of hope and it's not what this time of year is all about. Uh, no matter what your spiritual path or none you follow. And also, you know, I just want to say we've gotten some really nice messages from people uh, who reached out to us in our social media and through email and through Patreon and stuff. Um, and, and it's really, really lovely to hear your feedback. So thanks very much to everyone who's who sent messages. Yeah, the longest, darkest night has passed and the young sun will grow and the days will get longer and brighter. And that's something to look forward to. If you've been enjoying the show so far, you might consider becoming a patron. The Irish Mythology Podcast will always be free to listen to on the usual podcast platforms, but it isn't free to make. Your financial support can help us keep making it and continue to invest in things like additional recording equipment, books for research, and down the line, the ambitious one, uh, paying actors and crew to make full cast productions of the sagas you love. Maybe a Broadway musical, who knows? Don't don't get me... Aim high. Oh lads, you thought Hamilton was good. Wait till you wait till you see this. Uh so there's a range of benefits at different price tiers, and from just three euro a month, you can get early access to each episode, story scripts, and enhanced show notes, while from five euro a month you can get access to bonus episodes. Go and have a look at patreon.com forward slash Irish mythology podcast. And after all the talk of you know hope and light and new life. Actually, the bonus episode I'm working on at the moment is where do the Irish go when they die? So, um, Interesting. Mm. I'll have some input into that, particularly about one of the greatest books ever to come out of Ireland. Crane uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. Fantastic, yeah. But anyway. I, actually, I haven't, I've, uh, haven't read it yet, but I have seen the film and you've told me all yeah. about it. I do Whopper book. I can read that sometime. 
Um, but anyway, you can find us on Twitter at Irish Mythology P, on Facebook, Irish Mythology Podcast, on Instagram at Irish Mythology, and online at irishmythologypodcast.ie. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or another platform that includes ratings, and you like the show, do us a favour, go ahead, give us a five-star rating. It helps us reach a wider audience. So, slán, everybody. And remember, if you decide that you're going to start playing your magic harp, unless you can stop the sun for nine months and do these things in secret, be very, very careful. Gurmila Magwe Bagaslan. You have been listening to the Irish Mythology Podcast. Written, presented, and produced by Marcus O'Hishkeen and Stephanie Hearney. Theme music by Damiano Baldoni, Celtic Warrior, on an attribution license.